What this passage really emphasizes is that the ancient Israelites are to be truly impartial in their dealings with one another, in both the legal system and in private interactions with one another. You see, obviously, the, the legal language in verse 1, for example, about being, not, or not being, rather, a malicious witness. That's obviously the language of the courts. But you see in verses 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, that's not the language of the law courts, that's the language of just interpersonal dealings in society. The theme of these eight verses is that God wants His people to be truly impartial, both in legal proceedings and in just informal interactions with one another in their everyday lives. He wants them to pursue true impartiality. This is part of what it means to do justice. This is part of what it means to be righteous. Living in a just society would mean that you always get a fair shake. And everybody else in a just society always gets a fair shake. Everything that happens is truly impartial in a just society. It is this partiality, this sin of partiality, which really is the basis of injustice. And so God is speaking to the issue, essentially, of social justice here in this section of Scripture. We're going to look at seven threats to impartiality, taken one from each verse, one, two, three, and then one from verses four and five, and then one from each verse in six, seven, and eight, totaling up to seven threats to impartiality that we see here in this text this evening. I'm going to use, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, tread on landmines here, and I'm going to use recent U.S. events and the current political climate in the U.S. simply as a case study. I'm not uh, trying to resolve everything or give simplistic answers to serious conversations that are very legitimate to have, uh, not trying to give simplistic or reductionistic answers to uh, questions that are legitimate to ask, I recognize that it's complicated. For our purposes tonight, I'm only doing, I'm only pulling in that, um, that whole uh, can of worms simply to show that there is partiality on both sides of the debate. I'm using this can of worms as a real-world illustration of one way that these principles could apply and work themselves out in the 21st century. It is very relevant to consider what God says about justice in Exodus 23. It's not way back then. Here's, here's some ancient, uh, ancient historical trivia that we're going to learn from Exodus 23 tonight. Rather, we are actually seeing principles which can be brought very much into the modern context. After we um, work through these seven points, 
I, I hope it will be clear. Again, this is not really a sermon about politics or, or social justice in the U.S. or race relations or anything like that. This is a sermon about the seven principles that I'm going to enumerate. And again, I'm using those things as an illustration. So I hope by the end, you'll have a sense. I hope I will have put some feet on it, that I will have connected the dots between what is purely theoretical and some ways that it could work out in everyday life, such that we're able to then think, okay, we're not Americans, we're Barbadians. How would this apply here in Barbados? How would this apply in my everyday life? And so forth. Well, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say we're not Americans. <laughs> Most of us are not Americans. Okay, so what we see in, what we see in verse 1, I apologize to you. American sister. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. This is, this is a pretty straightforward concept, isn't it? You shouldn't be malicious to people. You shouldn't um, act with malicious intent to perpetuate injustice. Um, we remember last year the shooting of Ahmad Arbery, who was out jogging and was uh, shot by a couple of men who were uh, following him and harassing him, trying to get him, force him to stop and talk to them. And he declined, and a fight broke out, and he was shot. Uh, witnesses uh, testify that the man who shot him uttered racial slurs at the time. Uh, he had a history, apparently, of being a pretty racially prejudiced individual. I think the court case, if I'm not mistaken, is set for October 2021, uh, which means that it's pending. But um, uh, preliminaries are, have already happened, and um, we're awaiting the outcome of that case. But I mentioned, I mentioned that to say that whatever the outcome of this exact trial is, there is such a thing as just maliciousness. There is actually such a thing as racism. There is actually such a thing as acting maliciously in a partial way as opposed to the impartiality that God requires. This is prohibited very clearly by God's law. We are not to act with malicious intent towards anybody. If we were to look for a um, what is I think we could all agree that racism is a sin but how would we define that biblically? I think we'd have to come back to this concept of partiality. And acting with partiality, and particularly malicious partiality, towards a group of people defined by skin color, would be what we would call in modern parlance, racism. Acting with malicious intent, uh, with a preconceived idea of... Um, who this person is, what should be done to them because of your malicious partiality. This is very, very clearly forbidden by the scriptures. So that's verse 1. And I think that's pretty straightforward. That's not really a controversial point. To act with malicious intent against somebody is to be partial in a sinful way. So uh, verse 2 
presents us with this threat to impartiality, which is siding with the many, fearing the mob. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. I'm not speaking to her motives, but U.S. Representative Maxine Waters, uh, in criticizing one of um, Trump's policies with respect to uh, border controls and separating children from their parents, uh, said this, quote, let's make sure we show up wherever we have to show up. And if you see anybody from that cabinet, uh, that's Trump's uh, administrative um, body, if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. This is a, this is a US representative encouraging intimidation by gathering a crowd and forcing people out of department stores, gas stations, restaurants you you see that when this mentality is um, put into practice it makes it very hard to disagree with the mob right with the many and so you can see in a very real world way if you come up against what she calls a crowd but it's a crowd telling you you're not welcome anymore anywhere so I, I, I might say it's a little bit more like a mob than a crowd. It's very easy to side with the many. We have to recognize that there is this pressure uh, put upon us or put upon others that we put upon them to side with the many. We use this peer pressure, these intimidation tactics to get people to side with the many. Ought the Christian to simply side with the many? so as to act in a partial way as opposed to an impartial way? The answer to that is no. No matter what the many are doing, no matter what the many are saying, we have to be concerned not to give in to the many, but rather to act on principle. Whatever the issue is, whatever the situation is at hand, and again, I'm not commenting on Trump's immigration policies, but I'm saying... If somebody believes that such and such is the right thing to do or is the correct thing to do, that person should not simply kowtow to the many and do what the many are pressuring them to do simply because many are pressuring them to do it. That is a danger to impartiality that we have to be aware of. So that's verse 2. Verse 3. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. This is an interesting one. This verse tells us that automatically siding with the underdog is wrong. I'm not suggesting that there never has been, nor ever is currently, racial injustice in law enforcement in the U.S. Of course, I think we can all agree there has been and is, at times, at least, racial injustice in law enforcement. But in today's climate, here's a question for your consideration. 
In today's climate, could a white police officer ever shoot a black man without public outrage, satisfying public opinion that the use of force was justified? Could a, could a white police officer ever shoot a black man to the satisfaction, say for example, of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement? What, what we see, a dynamic that we see playing out right now, is that there is an automatic assumption, an automatic assumption that the white police officer is wrong and that the black man is right. Even if we grant, for the sake of argument, that there is systemic racial injustice in the US, it doesn't follow automatically from that that every single incident of um, a police using physical force on someone, whether it's lethal or non-lethal, is automatically unjustified. They have a job to carry out, and part of their job sometimes is the use of physical force and even lethal force. We have to be careful not to automatically side even with the vulnerable. If somebody has been mistreated in the past, it doesn't follow that they have been mistreated in the present. If somebody was mistreated last month, it doesn't automatically follow that they have been mistreated this month. We have to look at things on a case-by-case -case basis and not automatically side with the vulnerable. This is the principle that's enumerated here when it says, nor shall you be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. Verse 3. Moving on to verse 4 and 5. This seems out of nowhere. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under his burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. We've been talking about false reports, malicious witnesses, lawsuits, and all of a sudden now we're talking about oxes and donkeys. And then all of a sudden in verses 6 to 8, it goes back to, you shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. So we have the legal courtroom, and then also we have oxes and donkeys, and then we have legal stuff again below. So it seems at first unrelated. But as I was studying through uh, this section of scripture, I saw that it actually is very much related. This is speaking not so much to the legal dimension of impartiality, but to the informal, interpersonal dimension of impartiality. And the danger here to impartiality is that we are going to be tempted not to side with our enemy when we really ought to side with our enemy. So we would be tempted if we meet our enemy's ox or his donkey going astray to say, ha, serves him right. This is the Lord's doing. You know, he's bringing back on his own head what this person has done, right? We have an opportunity to act in a way that would be impartial if it was somebody that we liked. We would take the ox or the donkey back to that person. If it was our own, certainly we would want someone else to bring it back to us. So you remember that other thing that we're taught in the Bible, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? If you were acting impartially, 
you would bring your enemy's ox or his donkey back to him at that point. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, so this guy has either loaded the donkey too heavy or the donkey has been loaded heavily too long and has now collapsed and the guy is struggling to help get this burden off his donkey. Again, you're not to act in a partial way and just say, well, whatever. I would do it for someone else, but I'm not going to do it for you. Instead, it says, you shall rescue it with him. So here, here you are enjoined to go put your shoulder alongside your neighbor's shoulder under this donkey's burden and lift the burden from the donkey to rescue the animal from the health hazards due to collapsing under its burden. I don't think, I, I wrote this in um, after the 2016 U.S. elections when I was still living in Canada. I do not think that Donald Trump is a good man. I would not even want my wife and kids to have to ride in the elevator with him in my apartment building if he were my neighbor. And the reason for that is some of his vulgar comments that he's made about women over the years. I would, I would feel like he's like the dirty, creepy old, perverted guy that lives a couple doors down. I don't really have any personal respect for him. I still don't after all these years. Many have the same feelings, but some find it hard to affirm anything good at all about Trump or his presidency. And that's not impartiality. As Christians, there are actually a number of things that we could applaud with respect to what happened in the U.S. under his presidency. There are many things we would condemn, right? But remember, we're, we're being impartial here. We're trying not to paint with such a broad brush that either he's the savior of the free world or he hasn't done anything right. Trump installed three Supreme Court justices and 226 judges overall to the federal bench, all for lifetime appointments. And most of these judges would have been um, pretty conservative judges who would support uh, original reading of the Constitution, uh, protecting things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and enacting, therefore, it within their constitutional framework, policies that would actually benefit the conservative Christian. So that's certainly at least a stemming of the tide of an encroaching secularism and liberalism. These are, by the way, these are quotes from major news networks, not all of which were uh, pro-Trump, by the way. It wasn't like Fox. The Trump administration's first step prison reform proposals were cautious but humane. Mandatory minimum sentences will be reduced for certain drug offenses. Prisoners will more easily qualify for early release and be closer to their home. Women in prison will also receive sanitary products free of cost, helping to end the economic exploitation of prisoners who are often overcharged for basic necessities. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. A, a relaxation of some of these um, sentences that don't really seem to be keeping with the principle we talked about last week, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Being locked up for an exorbitant amount of time uh, for a comparatively small offense. Um, improving prison conditions. 
part of this was keeping prisoners within 500 miles of their home so that their friends and their family could reasonably visit at least from time to time as opposed to moving them, for example, 2,000 miles away where you're talking about a plane flight instead of a drive. Again, quote, Trump embraced the pro-life movement in a way no other president has and delivered an unprecedented string of pro-life victories. There's no question that uh, unborn babies profited from Trump's presidency. Again, quote, before the pandemic hit, the unemployment rate for black Americans reached an all-time low since the Bureau of Labor Statistics started keeping track in 1972 at 5.9% in May 2018. From a separate article here, Trump did improve on his performance with minorities in 2020 versus 2016. So what, what you're seeing here is um, a statistical decline Again, there's some debate. Some say, well, it started with Obama and Trump's just getting the credit for it. Uh, I'm, again, I'm not wading into all that. But the reality is, before the pandemic hit in 2018, black unemployment was at an all-time low since 1972. And more non-white voters voted for Trump in 2020 than in 2016. So you'd have to say at least some people's lives were improved and it wasn't all bad for non-whites under the Trump presidency. Again, don't take this as a Trump endorsement. But what I'm saying is you would have some people who would have a very difficult time saying anything good whatsoever to any degree about anything positive that Donald Trump did or accomplished during his time in the White House. And that's also not impartiality. Again, we look back to four and five. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Sometimes you need to do something impartial, even for your enemy. That's only fair. That's what impartiality actually looks like. Moving on to verse six. Another threat to impartiality is siding with the rich and or privileged, fearing loss of social status or profits. This is related to verse 2, I think. It says, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. That was verse 2. And verse 6 says, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So, if you think about the dynamics here, the many are saying one thing, but if the minority is right, you've got to stand with the minority. In verse, that's in verse 2. In verse 6, the rich are saying one thing, but if the poor man's right, you've got to stand with the poor man in his lawsuit. So you can see that they're conceptually related. I think that... What is in view in verse 2 is um, this concept of uh, the many and sort of, like I said at that time, the mob mentality. Whereas I think what is being emphasized in verse 6 is more the monetary aspect. Um, whether loss of profits due to disrupted business relationships or the loss of social status and networking that, would, that could lead to more profits. 
I think there's an issue here that if you don't sort of play by the rules of rich society and defend the poor man in his lawsuit, you also might end up the poor man. This seems to be sort of what is um, going on here. But I acknowledge it's conceptually related to verse 2. Um, this is a quote from an American political analyst. The left is so censorious, root word being censor, censorship, the left is so censorious and in such a position of cultural power that you'd have to be a fool not to fear for your livelihood and reputation by voicing an unwoke opinion. Can anyone disagree? I think, I think right now it's not very comfortable, not very political, politically correct to not be woke. Right? Regardless of whether you're woke or not, is again, not really the point here. The point is that there actually is a serious threat to uh, your livelihood and reputation by being outspokenly unwoke. So there is this, again, this social pressure then um, to think about how your money situation may be affected by doing justice, by being impartial, even if impartiality lands you on the wrong side of popular opinion, right? even if it's a detriment to your financial well-being. That's verse 6. Let's go on to verse 7. Complicity in a false charge or a neglect of due diligence is also not impartiality, even if it's for a reason other than maliciousness. So in verse 1, this is, 7 is related to verse 1. In verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. So we're to avoid maliciousness in verse 1. In verse 7, there's no mention of maliciousness. But again, we have this false charge coming up again. And this killing of the innocent and righteous, even if it's not malicious. If you're part of a false charge, a false execution of justice, if you're part and parcel of killing an innocent or righteous person, even if it's not malicious, you're still guilty of not acting in an impartial way. Because would you ever allow your spouse or your child, would you ever sit idly by while your spouse or your child or your best friend was not given due process? Well, justice was executed, uh, supposedly justice was executed in an unjust way. You see, even if you're not malicious, if you are part and parcel of the execution of so-called justice, which actually doesn't give people due process and ends in the, um, uh, ends in the uh, conviction or the uh, killing of an innocent or righteous person. This too is not impartiality in God's eyes because you're not treating the defendant like you would treat somebody else. And we have to be careful to apply this principle of 
um, impartiality across the board. I might mention here the Breonna Taylor case. So, quote here, the Louisville Metropolitan Police Department obtained a no-knock search warrant for Taylor's apartment at 3003 Springfield Drive in Louisville. The search warrant included Taylor's residence because it was suspected that Glover received packages containing drugs there, which might, might have been keeping narcotics and or proceeds from the sale of narcotics there. And because a car had been registered, and because a car registered to Taylor had been seen parked in front of Glover's house several times. Okay, so the police had a legitimate search warrant here um, to go in and look for narcotics or proceeds from the sale of narcotics. Um, according to the police, they knocked, uh, they said police, opened the door. Uh, according to Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, he never heard it was the police. They came through the door, he fired a warning shot, so shots fired, okay? Then the police opened fire. Um, I think it was, from my, my memory, I think it was 32 rounds that they discharged. So Brianna Taylor's boyfriend admittedly fired one, not even directed at the police, but nevertheless, the police received um, or heard gunfire while executing a search warrant. So they opened fire, presumably, perhaps debatably, there wasn't malicious intent in terms of when they showed up, we're going to murder someone today. But would you ever discharge 32 rounds in your own home with your kids in the next room? Would you ever discharge 32 rounds? Um, uh, obviously not carefully, obviously not knowing who or what you were going to hit with 32 rounds. This certainly was 100%, definitely, a lack of due diligence. I, in Canada, I have my firearms license. I had to do a firearm safety course. It's like very, very basic firearm safety that you don't discharge your gun unless you know not only what you're aiming at, but what is behind what you're aiming at in case you miss or in case the bullet goes through. You don't just open up and fire 32 rounds in a small apartment. Breonna Taylor was sadly and unjustly shot and killed. This is the killing of the innocent and righteous. This is a... Um, what we might call not so much a false charge but a, but a bad execution of justice because the death penalty certainly does not obtain in a case even, even if they had found narcotics or the proceeds from narcotic sales you still can't kill someone over that and so we might think of the officer particularly in question who I understand fired most of the shots. Would he ever have fired that many shots in his own home so recklessly? I think not. So those who are on the shooting end need to act with tremendous impartiality. There may be a time to discharge your firearm in the line of duty as a police officer, but you better be very careful 
and diligent and impartial and not wantonly and recklessly endanger people around you as you do. In other words, if somebody broke into my house in the middle of the night, I would not hesitate to use my firearm, but I also wouldn't just recklessly start firing in the same direction as my kids. And if I wouldn't do that, I shouldn't recklessly fire like that in anyone else's home, even if I was a police officer executing a search warrant. That's verse 7. And now let's go to verse 8. Another danger to impartiality is the love of money or the temptation of money, which is kind of related as well to verse 6. In verse 6, we read, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. And we talked about the potential threat to your livelihood from taking a certain side on a court case. In verse 8, um, we see, you shall, not take, you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. And both of these money is factoring in in terms of our impartiality. Lee Merritt is the attorney for the Arbery family. And uh, I read that Merritt, I'm not sure at what stage this was, but um, he appealed to have the case moved out of Brunswick, uh, which is an area in Georgia. He described as a small city deeply entrenched in nepotism and cronyism, and one where white people living there know law enforcement has their back, he said. So, if that's true, which again, I'm not, I'm not trying to speak to the details of these things, but if that's true, what Merritt asserts, that Brunswick is a small rural area where white people know that law enforcement has their back, and there's cronyism and nepotism, which is like appointing friends and kind of buddy-buddy and like, look the other way if your buddy does something. If it's true that that's the case, there's probably also bribes floating around. You know, a membership to a golf course in exchange for a couple of little favors or, you know, or even an envelope slid across the desk or, you know, little perks, discounts on your car repairs for the local sheriff if he looks the other way about this and that, whatever, right? In a situation where that kind of stuff happens, bribes may also, right? And I'm not making allegations here about anybody. I'm just saying there are situations like that. There are situations where sheriffs look the other way because of uh, membership to a golf course or envelopes slid across the desk or whatever. You know, to be honest, I've even scratched my head a couple times with some court cases I've seen here in Barbados where one person is convicted and another person is not convicted and you, you wonder here what happened behind the scenes. Again, I can't say, I have no evidence, but you do wonder sometimes, right? Money tends to skew impartiality as we think about our livelihoods as we think about um, our profitability of our business as relationships are affected by what we do in a certain situation it's a concern and it's a danger to us so again all of that is not really a sermon about social justice in the US or racial relations or I'm not even really commenting particularly on the Arbery case or Brianna Taylor case or who did what or who's right or whatever or Trump or whatever. But I'm saying that, that 
you can see, I hope, from the examples that I presented to you, that there is some impartiality on both sides. That both the woke and the unwoke, at times, are not impartial. Both the uh, police and those who um, don't commit crimes and are brutalized by the police, or do commit crimes and are brutalized by the police, whatever side, right, law enforcement or non-law enforcement or civilian, is not always impartiality. And you can see some of the specific ways that these principles here in Exodus 23 have been violated even in the modern day West. Details and circumstances will differ for us, especially here in Barbados. After all, as I said earlier, most of us are not Americans. But I hope you can see the principles in real world application here. And I hope as, as I was working through those that you might think of parallel situations that you might encounter. For us, what if a guy from a different denomination says something true? Or what if a female pastor from another denomination says something true? What, what if you have to defend your neighbor on a particular issue when he or she has mistreated you in the past? What if your friend or your spouse is put under church discipline? What if doing the right thing impacts job security or creates tension in your social circles? You get the idea? And you see, if you, if you read thoughtfully through these verses, it's warning you about particular ways that your heart may be tempted to be partial instead of being impartial. And the scripture is speaking to us here and saying, be careful that you don't be partial in that type of situation. Be careful that you don't be partial in that type of situation. Be careful that you don't be partial in this sort of situation or that sort of situation. Christians ought to be an eminently reasonable people. The scripture says in the New Testament, let your reasonableness be evident to all. Our reasonableness should be evident to all. We should be able to sit down and have a reasonable conversation in our workplace about any issue in our workplace. We should be able to sit down and have a reasonable discussion with those who we might consider or they might consider to be enemies, even those who are antagonistic towards us. We should be able to sit down and grant when they make fair points and acknowledge when they say something true. We shouldn't be um, so closed-minded and narrow-minded that we can't see when even someone we disagree with is right on a particular issue or a particular point. Even when someone we don't like is right on a particular issue or a particular point. Even when the fair application of the law would exonerate somebody that we might feel that we would rather see in dots. We Christians ought to be the most reasonable people, the most impartial people, that you would side with even your enemy over your spouse or over your friend 
if your enemy was right and your friend or your spouse was wrong. We really ought to be a reasonable people. And this is true justice. True justice throws a police officer in jail when the police officer has used unjustified force. And true justice exonerates a police officer when the use of force was justified. True justice takes a liberal view on this issue when the liberal view on this issue is correct. And true justice takes a conservative view on this issue when the conservative view on this issue is correct. Injustice. In, injustice or partiality says the police are always right. Injustice or partiality says the police are always wrong. Injustice or partiality says the Democrats are always right or the Democrats are always wrong. Injustice, impartiality, or pardon me, injustice or partiality says the Republicans are always right or the Republicans are always wrong. Right? Or to bring it a little closer to home, right? The BLP, the DLP, whatever, right? We ought not to be those of a party spirit who are just going to take the side of the many or who are just going to take the side of the rich or who are just going to take the side of the poor or who are just going to take the side of our friends and always against our enemies. We ought not to be those kinds of people who make decisions and adopt a lifestyle and a disposition towards the people around us that is based on partiality. I'm with this group, so whatever, wherever they are, that's where I am too. That ought not to be the way that Christians interact with the world around us. Even if, for example, the Reformed Baptist... Uh, I, was, I don't know what I was going to say. Like, group, whatever. Culture. Like, if, if Reformed Baptists predominantly went one way on an issue... I shouldn't just go that way because I'm a pastor of a Reformed Baptist church. Right? If the Reformed Baptists are wrong, I hope I would have the integrity to say, no, I'm not going down that road. Sometimes we need to take a stand for what's right, even if it's taking the side of a minority on an issue as opposed to a majority on an issue. Even if it's taking the side of the poor on an issue as opposed to the side of the rich on the issue or even if it's taking the side of the rich on an issue and not the side of the poor on an issue we need to be people that are principled and impartial in all of our dealings whether formally in our law courts as a society and that's particularly how this would apply to legislators judges if I was preaching to uh, the parliament, for example, I would really emphasize that point. That in our legal proceedings, in our legislation, we have to strive for impartiality. But as I'm not talking to a group of legislators, for most of us, the applications are informal. In our everyday lives, we really have to think, am I acting in an impartial way? Am I treating this person fairly and judiciously? Regardless of my personal inclinations... Am I treating this person 
the way that I would treat anyone else? Am I being impartial to this person? Listen, the Americans are not going to get it right. I don't know what will happen in the next five or 10 years or 20 or 50, but I do know one thing, they won't get it right. And neither will the Barbadians. And neither will the Canadians. And neither will you. And neither will me. Neither will I. <laughs> neither will me. I know for sure, I know for sure that the Americans won't get it right. And I know for sure that the Beijings and the Canadians and the U's and the me will not get it right. I know that. Because the problem is sin. From that same article that um, I wrote in 20, after the 2016 election, which I quoted from earlier, I also wrote this. As long as this world spins around and around, until Christ returns, kingdoms will rise and fall. Civilizations will develop, make progress, regress, and devolve. As someone has said, there is nothing new under the sun. People are still sinners, still in need of salvation from that sin. And only Jesus can save us. Remember, I wrote this in 2016. Not Trump, not Clinton, and not the 2020 elections. So my family sang Psalm 146 together this morning. Put not your trust in princes. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob. And I wrote this in 2016, not from Barbados, but from Canada. So lift your eyes, brothers and sisters, to the south. And lift your eyes, fellow Canadians, concerned about our neighbors to the south. Hope not ultimately in Trump or the next candidate in 2020. Hope in Christ. And until he returns, live in trusting obedience to him for his glory. Only his kingdom is sure, steady, full of righteousness. Only his kingdom is full of righteousness and eternal. And fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is our marching orders. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. We ought to be true justice people. True, biblical, impartiality justice people. We ought to pursue that as we have influence in a democratic society and free speech. We ought to use that to promote impartiality. We ought to applaud our governments when they act in impartial ways. We ought to condemn our governments and call for change when they act in partial ways. But we ought not to make the mistake of thinking that we will achieve a heaven on earth until heaven truly descends to earth. Until the Lord Jesus returns with a cry of command. Until that last trumpet sounds and we see the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. Until the dwelling place of God is with man. There is always going to be a certain amount of injustice here. 
So pursue justice. Do justice. Do justice. Call for justice. But as you do that, hope in Christ. Long for his kingdom. And don't be naive. Realize that true justice, complete justice, always justice, only justice, the fullness of justice, inerring justice, is only going to happen when the Lord Jesus returns. But that's actually not a discouraging thought. That's actually an encouraging thought because Jesus is returning. Which means that as we continually try to do justice and call for justice and work for justice and election cycle after election cycle, whether in the US or in Barbados or Canada or wherever else, as empires rise and as empires fall and we see all around us, it's not justice yet, it's actually encouraging to think that there will be justice when Christ returns. Because return he will to make all things new. And we will live with him in the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So put your hope there, even as you do justice and call for justice in the meantime.